The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Thank you, Sheldon. Good morning, Grace Family Church. Okay, thank you, Sarah. That was different. (laughs) Wonderful to see you all this morning. Grateful to have the opportunity to preach God's word for you, for us this morning. So permit me a longish introduction. First, let's talk about tea again. I already told you about my wife's tea-making habits some weeks ago. Today, I want to tell you about John Newton and how he made tea. John Newton was a man who was notable for a number of reasons, but he's best known as the writer of the very popular hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton was once asked if he was a Calvinist. Some of you are barely familiar with that term, if at all, but others of you would be aware that it is a label which seems to attract animosity and to create conflict. What might surprise you is that that was the case in Newton's time also, in the 18th century, and more so, in fact. So the story goes that Newton, when asked if he was a Calvinist, took a lump of sugar and added it to the tea that he was drinking and stirred it in and replied, I am more of a Calvinist than anything else, but I use my Calvinism in my writing and preaching as I use this sugar. I do not give it alone and whole, but mixed. I think these doctrines should be in a sermon like sugar, like sugar in a dish of tea, which sweetens every drop, but is nowhere to be found in a lump, tasted everywhere, though prominent nowhere. Now, I love how Newton makes his tea, and no offense, honey, but, but he was British, you know, So what I mean, though, is that I love how he held these particular theological convictions and how he approached serving others with them. In general, we found Newton to be a wonderful role model for how we should operate graciously towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not they hold the same convictions we do on matters that are secondary to the gospel, which, as you know, is the thing which is of first importance. But in particular, this approach has shaped our approach here in Grace Family Church. You see, we, your pastors, like Newton, are convinced that the Bible reveals a God who gloriously and completely rules over everything in the universe, a God whose will cannot be frustrated and who mercifully, sovereignly saves sinners without their help. That's what we mean by Calvinism or Reformed theology. Now, we will more often than not refer to those beliefs as the doctrines of grace, simply because that name is less contentious and there's wisdom in being less contentious whenever you can be less contentious. Newton once said, I am neither fearful nor desirous of being called after the names of men. I can echo that thought verbatim. But because of our desire to serve others around us and not to be a hindrance to them, we probably won't wear the label Calvinist on our t-shirts. But we want you to know that the truths about the sovereignty of God over everything flow through our veins and bring vitality to our faith. Now, as much as I'm drawn to the way Newton makes his tea, 
This morning, I'm going to do what he rarely did. My goal this week and next week is to call your attention to the sugar cane. In other words, I want to show you where we get the sugar from. I think, that, I think that's going to be both necessary and helpful for several reasons. For one, our journey towards membership requires a conspicuous presentation of our convictions. We don't want to love you into a local church without you knowing what we believe and what shapes how we'll care for you. To do that would be to lack integrity, and it would also imply that these convictions don't matter much at all. And as you consider membership, it helps you to hear these values articulated clearly so that you can consider whether you, with your own convictions, are able to submit to and be shepherded by men with the convictions we've been sharing with you. Again, I want to reinforce the fact that membership does not require emphatic agreement with us on these matters. But emphatic disagreement would be something we wouldn't want you to ignore, uh, and we wouldn't want to ignore either, but rather something we'd want to engage with alongside you and encourage you to weigh seriously as you make a decision about whether God has called you to belong here. We've been preaching sermons here for nine months now, and I trust you have been tasting the sweetness in our preaching. I'm sure many of you have, but I'm also fairly certain that some of you haven't been able to detect what it is you've been tasting and are being nourished by. I strongly suspect that seeing and sampling the sugar cane will increase your ability to detect and appreciate its flavor, even when it is not the dominant flavor of what you're being taught, but a subtle accent. There's a statement on the Sovereign Grace website that details this particular belief that we share with our sister churches in our denomination. And it begins this way. Scripture presents the all-glorious triune God as the source and end of all things, sovereignly working all things according to his will. That exhaustive sovereignty, which is foundational to the doctrines of grace, is what I hope to demonstrate from the scriptures in this sermon. Our journey will have three stages as we examine and apply what the Bible teaches. We'll be beholding the sovereignty of God. Then we'll wrestle. We'll be wrestling with the sovereignty of God. And then finally, resting in the sovereignty of God. We need first to see God's glorious, absolute power in action in the pages of the scriptures. Then we need to face some of the many questions it reasonably raises. But ultimately, if we are to benefit from these truths, we must give in to them. We must, as the psalmist instructs, be still and know that I am God. So let's proceed. Beholding the sovereignty of God. In the Bible, God graciously reveals who he is so that we might become his friends. One of the things it reveals is that God is the sovereign ruler of all that he made. Now, if you think about the Bible from cover to cover, you'll realize that it begins and ends with the portrayal of God as unequivocally sovereign. He made everything out of nothing all by himself. And in the end, he conclusively triumphs over his enemies and graciously renews the world. I think it's fair to say that all the questions people have about what it means for God to be sovereign, where you'll hear significant variance among Christians, have to do with what happens between those bookends. My goal right here is to make a bad movie trailer for you. You see, a good movie trailer makes you want to watch the film, but it obscures all of the key details so that when you watch the film, you realize, okay, the story wasn't actually given away to me before the fact. The Bible is a long and dense book. 
It would take me hours to share even my favorite stories of God's sovereignty. So what I must attempt is to edit a trailer designed to give away the story, highlighting as many key moments as I can. Moments in which God's comprehensive and complete rule is portrayed and proclaimed and even presumed. So I won't spend time illustrating God's sovereign providential care and sustenance of his creation. We saw some months ago in Colossians that in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Describing God being hands-on and powerfully active in the sustenance of the whole created order. And many other scriptures testify to that fact. Perhaps it would be a good, a good starting point, a good place to start, if we go to one of the oldest stories in the scriptures, the story of Job. Now, we're going to be all over the Bible today, but it would help you to turn to Job chapter 1. Because it gives us a rare divine perspective on events in heaven and on earth, it offers tremendous insight into the nature of God's rule. In the story, we're introduced to Job, a godly man with a big family and abundant wealth. But Job goes through a series of calamities in a single day that tragically rob him of his ten children and of all his flocks and herds. And of course, at that time, flocks and herds were, were, were how you acquired and, and accumulated wealth. And all of this happens because Satan questioned his loyalty to God, and God gave Satan permission to test Job. And even after Job passed that first test, Satan was still dissatisfied and sought further permission to inflict terrible sickness on Job, permission which was granted by God, leaving Job in excruciating discomfort and unrecognizable even to lifelong friends. But Job knew God. Here's how he responded to all he suffered, along with authoritative comments from the narrator. First in Job chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And Job 2.10, after he was afflicted with sickness, Job says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Here's a quick catalog of what we learn from the portrayal of God's sovereignty in Job's story. The suffering that Job experienced came through various means. Murderous raiding parties, freak storms, and horrible illness. So it involved human sin, natural disasters, and disease, all through satanic agency. But above all this, there was God. And God is sovereign over storms and stealing and sin and sickness and even Satan in such a way that when Job says that he received evil from God, that's not just true. It's worship. Not only is it not wrong to speak of God's sovereignty in good and evil, said from a humble and trusting heart, it is God-honoring worship. And what we see in the particular case of Job, the Bible proclaims as universally true. So the psalmist in Psalm 135 verses 5 to 6 sings, For I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth 
in the seas and all the deeps. And in Daniel 4, 34b and 35, he's praised this way. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to him, and, I'm sorry, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In Isaiah 45, 7, God himself proclaims, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This is how the scriptures speak of the rule of God over creation. He does whatever pleases him in heaven and on earth. He cannot be stopped by anyone and he's accountable to no one. Every good gift we receive is from his hand. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's why the Apostle Paul, in introducing God to the inhabitants of the city of Lystra, who knew nothing about him, could speak of God's personal care for them. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But make no mistake, when it comes to calamity, this same God is also acting in his sovereign power and manifesting his absolute rule. It is the fact that we receive anything good from God that should astound us because he owes us nothing except the wages or sin earned, which is death. So Paul quotes a psalm of David in Romans 4, 78. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In fact, you can know those who have experienced the sovereign saving grace of God in the scriptures. They're the ones singing the songs. That's the same reason we sing when we gather. And if you have not yet experienced God's grace through salvation in Jesus, I pray that today God would extend mercy towards you so that you would put your trust in Jesus and turn from your rebellion and self-righteousness and join in the song. The Bible portrays, proclaims, and presumes that God's sovereignty encompasses every detail of his creation. I'm going to quickly flip through some scenes from a number of Bible stories for you. In Genesis 30, Rachel has an argument with her husband Jacob about her infertility. And he's exasperated with her because, as he says, he's not God who has withheld from her the fruit of the womb. God says to Moses in Exodus 4 that he's not only the one who made man's mouth, but makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind. Think for a moment of the story of Jonah. Have you ever considered how many years it would have taken God to prepare a fish that was big enough to swallow Jonah and big enough for his life to be sustained for several days underwater and the precise GPS positioning required for it to swallow him before he drowned in the kind of storm that was threatening a cargo ship? In the Bible, God employs kings and beggars, beauty contestants and prostitutes, angels and demons, worms and lions, random arrows and heart attacks as he accomplishes his specific purposes in exactly the way he means to, at exactly the time he plans to. In Isaiah 46, 9b to 10, 
one of the most significant proclamations of his sovereignty. God himself says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The astounding truth is this, all that God has purposed will come to pass and only what God has purposed comes to pass. You see, God's will is not just concerned with a handful of big ticket events in human history. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but his every decision is from the Lord. Now in the proverb, the lot, which is basically rolling dice, represents the most random seeming event that the writer could think of. Even that is completely controlled by God. That's why Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is stared as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rose bush is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. That the fall of sere leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Now that's breathtaking. But surely that kind of sovereign control does not extend to us as human beings. I mean, aren't we free? Well, the New Testament author James says that we're arrogant to presume that we will accomplish our business, whether errand or enterprise, on any given day if it's not God's business. So he counsels, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And we've already looked at the story of Job. So don't you suspect that the Sabaean and Chaldean raiders who stole Job's flocks and herds and killed their servants were doing exactly what they wanted to do? Yet in that same moment, they were instruments of Satan. And the mystery of God's sovereignty is that they were also and ultimately instruments of God. Yet God was not guilty of sin, and they themselves were culpable for their actions. Jeremiah 10, 23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That it is not in the man who walks to direct his steps. Now compare with me the humble audacity of those words from Jeremiah to the bold-faced arrogance of the words of William Ernest Henley as he ends his poem, Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I hope your faith sounds more like Jeremiah than it does like Henley. Now, these are weighty biblical truths which are not to be ignored or treated as academic discussions. They confront us. They call us out. We must wrestle with them. So let's think this through wrestling with the sovereignty of God. Now, I've wrestled a bit with how I should help you to wrestle with the sovereignty of God. You see, some of you love this stuff. You're like, bring it on. But others of you don't. You're more like, do we have to? Or maybe even, I don't see any value in this. And I will freely admit that I have been a part of far too many arguments about the sovereignty of God that have generated much more heat than light and I've expressed pride rather than humility. Rest assured 
That's not the road we're going to walk today. The best place to begin our wrestling is not to start with our burning questions. The best, the most helpful, the most humbling place we can go to begin our wrestling is to the cross. The death of Jesus is the central event in human history. Everything flows to it, and then everything after it flows from it. In the cross, we see the undeniable, unfathomable, glorious, justifying work of God planned before creation and the glaring, reprehensible, unjustifiable actions of men. And how does the Bible help us to understand what happened at the cross uh, as we wrestle with the sovereignty of God and with human accountability? What's helpful is to track how Jesus' apostles spoke about the crucifixion after the fact. So in Acts 2.23, Jesus' disciple Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, he explains further in speaking to a crowd of his countrymen in Acts 3.13-17. He says this, and I'm just picking out statements from these four verses. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. You acted in ignorance. But then, in verse 18, he says this, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. I hope you're feeling the paradoxical weight of what Peter is saying here. You did this. You did this. You did this. God did this. God fulfilled what he foretold. Peter does not even attempt to explain how all of that can be true at the same time. He just states it plainly. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of, of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Another translation says, The Lord was pleased to crush him. But wasn't the death of Jesus sinful? Wasn't it, in fact, the greatest act of evil ever committed because of whom it was committed against? God hates sin, and those who participated in the death of his son are guilty before him. Yet in another sense, God planned and fulfilled, not merely predicted, every detail of the death of the son he loves. And he was pleased to act in covering our sins. If we are to rightly wrestle with the baffling truth of a sovereign God who holds his creatures accountable to him, the best place to stand as we do it is at the foot of the cross. From this vantage point, still confounded by the mystery, we can be comforted by the good news of a sovereign God, a God who is sovereign over all things. So here's what's true because of the cross. If you are in Christ, beloved son or daughter, God can simultaneously abhor the suffering he has chosen to put you through, yet be loving you and working out his good plan for you in and through that same suffering. Romans 8.28 is well known. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Douglas Moo comments on this verse. It is the sovereign guidance of God that is presumed as the undergirding and directing force behind all the events of life. God's purpose, according to the text in Romans chapter 8, is that we should become just like Jesus. 
and that we should arrive safely home to dwell with him. What feels like bad news to us is that God's purpose is not to secure our comfort right now. Move further comments on this. The promise to us is that the promise to us is that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage. Now, the sovereignty of God raises many good questions. Humbly wrestling with our questions is a part of obedience to the great command to love the Lord our God with our minds. It is the chewing over of God's word that Psalm 1 calls us to. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says to his protege, Timothy, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That understanding is a good gift. Ignorance is not bliss. But the man or woman who sees their God with greater and greater clarity experiences greater and greater stability and joy. You see, we need insight. Because by God's designs, our emotions are shaped by our convictions. Now, the journey from understanding to feeling can take time. It's not automatic, but it is important. And even if you feel like this kind of thinking is too hard for you, how you think is already shaping your emotions daily. You might even feel like you're at the mercy of your emotions from time to time, and you don't understand why you're so miserable or so anxious or so angry. Those emotions are often the product of beliefs about God and about yourself and about the world. And you might not even be aware of what those beliefs are. This is a part of what the Bible is talking about when it, when it calls us to take every thought captive to Christ. The Bible has been given to us to renew our minds, to renew our thinking. And that is fundamental to our being transformed into the image of Christ. Now, wrestling with truths like these can be compared to climbing a mountain to do high-altitude training. I mean, they're breathtaking truth. The vista is amazing, but they're also hard to breathe in. You see, we're used to inhaling the polluted, stale air down here where we live with everyone else in the world, breathing in their toxic secondhand smoke. But scaling the heights of God's sovereignty, breathing in this rarefied air, fortifies you to deal with daily life and all it throws at you. It can be a difficult and uncomfortable thing to contemplate God in his sovereignty, especially when it comes to the problem of and our experience of evil. I remember when the devastating earthquake uh, that killed 230,000 people struck Haiti in 2010. I was with a friend at the time who's an occasional churchgoer. And without a lot of premeditation, I made a statement expressing compassion while also affirming God's control over that disaster. Now, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I have never forgotten what she said. Uh, she recoiled physically first and protested, my God wouldn't do that. It's unthinkable to many modern people who claim belief in God but have not been taught clearly from the scriptures that he would be responsible for any kind of evil, whether a natural disaster, accident, or human sin. For them, God is a Santa Claus type character from whom we receive good things if we are good people. This week I read an interview with Brittany Howard. She's the lead singer of a band called Alabama Shakes and she recently released a solo album. 
A part of the life history that she shared was the death of her older sister, who died at age 13 from a rare form of cancer. Here's what she said. My whole family was devastated. We had prayed and she didn't make it. I was like, how could God do this to a child? How could he do this to our family? The family stopped going to church after that. I empathize with their suffering and I wish they had known the God that Job knew. We want to be a local church where you're free and assisted to patiently wrestle with the often uncomfortable truths of the sovereignty of God. And it shouldn't surprise you that there are things about God that are confusing and perhaps even distasteful to you. If we are coming from being hostile in mind to God, as Colossians 1.21 taught us, why should we think that our instincts about God are reliable? Most of us can testify to things that the scriptures teach that were that were uncomfortable, that we were uncomfortable with once. But now we, are not only not, now we are not only comfortable with them, we actually celebrate those things. That's a part of the journey of sanctification. Now, if we detach God's sovereignty from his love and his wisdom, we'll find it very difficult to embrace. And rightly so. You see, we don't particularly esteem mere power, and we understandably see it as a threat to our well-being. But God's sovereignty is never detached from his love, from his patience, and from his wisdom. He's not all-powerful but malicious, but nor is he benevolent but impotent, unable to actually do for us what is good, like a father who would want to save his child from drowning but is unable to swim, as Jerry Bridges helpfully illustrates. God's wise, loving sovereignty is his freedom and unhindered ability to love those whom he has chosen to love in every way in which he has purposed to love them, and to do so governed perfectly by his infinite wisdom by which he rules the world, including those who will ultimately face his eternal wrath. And it is because our God is precisely like this that we in our wrestling can surrender to him and rest. Resting. In the sovereignty of God. Let's begin here with some words from Jesus, the one who invites us to learn of him as he gives us rest. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than sparrows. Than many sparrows. The context here is that Jesus has just told his disciples that they are going to experience persecution. They will suffer and some of them will be killed. Now, even in the face of that, in the face of all that, he wants to comfort them. And what he does is point them to God's sovereign care for birds, no less, and argue from lesser to greater. Sparrows are worth a trifle, yet they can't die without God say so. And when it comes to you, each individual hair on your head has God's attention. You can rest in that truth. The salve of that truth can wipe away your fears. Tom Schreiner and Bruce Ware point out that ours is a culture in which the tendency to exalt what is human, sorry, ours is a culture 
in which the tendency is to exalt what is human and to diminish what is divine. So this then is worth emphasizing. What Jesus says here is of zero value if God feels a greater sense of care for you, for us, than he does for the birds, but he is constrained by something which does not allow him to act on that care. Like, for example, his commitment to the free will of those who want to do you harm. Are you sure you want to live your life believing in a God who has a philosophical commitment to your enemy's rights to do whatever they want? No, my friends. It's better to embrace the mystery and be comforted by God's sovereign care than to argue your way out of it and live your life unsure of anything and afraid of everything. I'm convinced that it is passages like this one why John Newton says, the views I have received of the doctrines of grace are essential to my peace. I could not live comfortably a day or an hour without them. Now, Newton, whose Calvinism was not abrasive to the touch or harsh to the taste, was constantly comforted by these truths. Calvin himself said that God's providential care inspires gratitude in prosperity, patience in adversity, and a wonderful security respecting the future. These truths that we wish to commend to you can make a massive difference in your experience of each and every day of your life. How, you might ask? Well, think about planning, for instance. I'm personally acquainted with a number of believers who struggle with planning and with the failure of their plans. Now, they know the popular teaching of Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And they humbly seek to walk in obedience to it. Yet they are afflicted with doubts and anxiety and robbed of peace when things go up in smoke. They look at their circumstances and they wonder what they did wrong. That's because even while they acknowledge God's enabling, they are convinced that in an ultimate sense, the outcome of their life depends on them, on their diligence, on their faith. Psalm 138 verse 8 gives us this assurance. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. If you're coming to understand how we're teaching you to read the Psalms, you'll recognize that this promise belongs primarily to Jesus. But it is yours in him, child of God. Jerry Bridges' counsel is priceless. He says, Calvinists recognize that when they have done their best to plan and make wise decisions, their planning is at best imperfect and their decisions may sometimes turn out to be bad decisions. But they also believe that God is in control of even their bad decisions and will, through his infinite wisdom, work out the results of those decisions in such a way as to accomplish his sovereign will. In other words, they believe that God cannot be thwarted or frustrated by their bad decisions. They do not use this as an excuse for irresponsibility, but they do take courage in the fact that God's will and God's plan are not finally dependent on their coming through for God. It was our confidence in God's gracious and wise sovereignty that gave my family peace this summer when Maya's application for visa renewal was denied uh, when we went to the em embassy, just completely laying waste to all our vacation plans. 
Of course, we were disappointed and we wondered why. But we didn't blame Satan. And we didn't waste time second-guessing things we had done or wondering why I was so unlucky to go up to that stiff-looking, quiet-talking, unsmiling woman who interviewed me instead of the chatty guy who was kind of loud, very thorough, but seemed quite fair two windows down. We knew ultimately that the visa refusal came, came from the hand of our gracious God. So instead of throwing a tantrum like spoiled, entitled children, we grieved and we made other plans, and God graciously opened the door for us to have a breakdown here, which was much more affordable. We had a wonderful time together as a family here in Jamaica. We enjoyed time with each other, and we were refreshed in the kindness of God. The story of Joseph in the Bible is a powerful testimony to the sovereign purposes of God and to the sustaining and sanctifying power of confidence in God's control over all events. Joseph, as most of you would know, was sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and forgotten by the chief cupbearer whose dream he had interpreted. But God orchestrated his rise from prison to prime minister, and Joseph graciously provided for his family and forgave his brothers when famine drove them to the land of Egypt. But after their father Jacob died, his brothers were worried that Joseph would finally take his revenge at this point for what they had done to him. So they basically came groveling to seek his favor. And this was Joseph's reply recorded in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, it's plain and obvious to anyone who reads the story of Joseph that his brother's actions were intentional and malicious. But Joseph tells us what was not so obvious. God was acting in and underneath his brother's sin, acting for a good purpose that extended even to those treacherous brothers. Now, I've heard people read this verse, and somehow what they read is this. You meant evil against me, but God turned it around for good. But that's not what the text says. To think of it that way relegates God's role to one of responding to evil. No, God was not rescuing the situation. They intended evil. God intended good. At the very least, we must understand his actions to be as premeditated as theirs. Better yet, we should recognize that before time began, God meant to bring about this specific good for his people, including those of us who are in Christ and are direct beneficiaries of the preservation of Jacob's family from whom Jesus was descended in the flesh. They meant one thing, God meant another. They intended for one outcome, God superintended in and above their intentions. Now, I'm not pushing the linguistic envelope here. Listen to how Psalm 105, 16-17 speaks about what happened to Joseph. When he, God that is, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. When you ask the question, how did Joseph end up in Egypt? The Bible's answer is God sent him there ahead of his family. That's what Joseph himself said in Genesis 45, verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Romans 15.4 tells us, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 
This story of Joseph is meant to help us to patiently endure our own God-ordained suffering, to give us encouragement and comfort and hope as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Many of you have already suffered in deeply painful ways in your lives. I know some of your stories. None of us has any idea what suffering lies in our future. We cannot change the past and we do not control the future. But as Margaret Clarkson says, the sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. Jerry Bridges again counsels and comforts us. God's sovereignty means that God is in control of our pain and suffering and that he has in mind a beneficial purpose for it. There's no such thing as pain without a purpose for a child of God. We may be sure that however irrational and inexplicable it seems to us, all pain has a purpose. We prize these truths not because we think we've figured out some great enigma. We prize them because they anchor our souls in the storms of life. And if you choose to belong to Grace Family Church, know that we are committed to serving you with these truths, among others, in our preaching, in our counseling, in our care, and in our shared mission. This morning we have beheld and wrestled with the sovereignty of God. And I hope that you have also begun to rest, or at least begun to see the grace-giving value of resting in the sovereignty of God. Here's what it all comes down to. Confidence in the loving, wise sovereignty of God is the wellspring of durable peace in the hearts of his saints in every circumstance. Let me say that for you again. Confidence in the loving, wise sovereignty of God is the wellspring of durable peace in the hearts of his saints in every circumstance. One privilege that I've enjoyed in my life is that these magnificent truths have been deposited in my heart over years from many different sources. One was through music. Here are some lyrics for a song I used to listen to almost 20 years ago. Well, this day's been crazy, but everything's happened on schedule. From the rain and the cold to the drink that I spilled on my shirt. Because you knew how you'd save me before I fell dead in the garden. And you knew this day long before you made me out of dirt. And you know the plans that you have for me. And you can't plan the end and not plan the means. And, I so, and, and so I suppose I just need some peace just to get me to sleep. That peace was present for Sam and me on July 26, 2010, when armed gunmen came in on us and a number of friends while we were hosting a small group meeting at our home. Now these guys were high on weed and they were jittery through the whole thing. As I stood in our driveway with a gunman and with his gun aimed at my stomach, and another two men walking past me, I, me not being able to do anything, heading into the house to my unsuspecting friends and family, I started to cry out to God. And in an instant, a peace washed over me that didn't even make any sense. And I'm about to second guess it for a moment. And I'm like, no, maybe I should just go with this, you know, rather than wonder why my heart rate has just gone back to normal. I had no specific sense in that moment of how things would play out, whether everyone would be fine or whether somebody would be injured or killed. I just knew that God was with us. And that was enough. I won't share all the details of how that episode played out right now, but suffice to say they confined us all to our room, grabbed all of the little things they could grab, and left us unharmed. 
And then we had the aftermath, you know, the police come, friends come, there's all of this hubbub, you're giving reports, you're telling the story six or seven times because different people show up and want to know what happened. And all of that went on for about two hours. And then we locked up the house, put two-year-old Maya and nine-month-old Dominic to bed, and we went to sleep. And we slept well that night. Now, I can't recall if the thought of not sleeping there that night crossed our minds. But I know that what guarded our minds was conscious confidence in the exhaustive sovereignty of God. We remembered that God had watched over us in that home for hundreds of days before that evening. And he watched over us that evening too. Evil could only go as far as he determined for it to go. And we knew that we could continue to be confident in his unshakable love, even if he chose to allow something like that or worse to happen in the future. Little flock, may you rest today and for this week in the peace that comes from knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds every detail of your life in his almighty hands. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.